in a teaching series on prayer, and I'm really glad you're here today. Prayer is just one of those universal things. Uh, it's just true to the human experience. From the latest studies published just last year, only 14% of the residents of Maine attend church on a regular basis. 14, 1-4. 14%. Uh, attend church on a regular basis. And you start to think about your circle of friends, and you probably are going to discover that's about right. Unless you've been a church person for a long time. The longer you're a church person, the more insider-oriented you get, and then uh, all your friends are church friends. And then, you're, yeah, then we find ourselves in a bubble. But if you've managed to avoid the church bubble thing, uh, you, that number 14 probably resonates with your experience. We're here to change that, by the way, as a church. That's why we're here. We're here for people who aren't here yet. And uh, if, if you wonder why uh, we don't do all the things that you'd like to do and all the things you'd like to experience in church, it's because you're a church person now. You've been here a couple of weeks. You're a church person now. And we're still about the people who aren't here yet. So there's, there's a big audience out there um, that we need to, to draw in. So that's why we're here. We believe that there is a God. We believe that he loves us. We believe that he knows our name. And he wants to be in relationship with us. That's why we're passionate about this thing that we're doing. According to... Uh, a Gallup study in 2015, only 14% of all Maine residents attend church at least once a month, and 65% never or rarely attend a church service, 65%. Nationwide, only 40% of people say that they attend church at least once a month, and I think that's high, but 54% of the population say that they pray. That's the entire population. Almost everybody prays. Almost everybody in this room prays, probably. You don't have to be a Christian to see a need to pray. This has been my experience, to acknowledge that you pray. I mean, I know lots of people who would not consider themselves Christians or followers of Jesus who acknowledge that they have a need for prayer in their life. Because uh, even if you aren't sure that there's a God, or if there is, you know, what is he like, you still, you still pray. And most of us pray because we feel this need to pray. And when you look back through history and you study anthropology, you won't find a completely atheistic culture. Or, or let me say it this way, uh, you won't find a, complete, a completely prayerless culture. Prayer looks different from culture to culture, for sure. But prayer is a, is a human instinct. At its most basic, it's an instinct. If there really is a God, can I connect with him? If there really is a God, does he care? If there really is a God, is he good? And so probably all of you have prayed at one point. Just to get everybody engaged here, how many of you have ever prayed once, at least once? Just want to see, because I really want to look at this crowd. <laughs> Keep your hand up. Okay, wow, i got more work to do than I thought. Okay, uh, no, just kidding. No, okay. Um, Maybe there was a season where you prayed more than you're praying right now. Maybe your prayer life right now is the best it's ever been. Um, but as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we launched the series, is that prayer can be challenging. And a lot of you have been frustrated with prayer. I mean, almost everybody has been frustrated with their prayer life. And you wonder if God's even listening. And you wonder if God's ever going to grant your request. And so prayer has been a challenge for all of us at some point in our journey. And it's even a challenge for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, for those of us who've been, who are complete, you know, churchy insiders our whole lives. We experience these frustrations too. It's, it's not like we're the exception. I've experienced all the good things about prayer. I've experienced some great seasons of prayer, and I've experienced all the frustrations that you've experienced as well. So uh, we're just trying to take an honest look at prayer. A few weeks ago, we launched uh, a survey about prayer, and we put it out to you, and we put it out on Facebook and our website and email and all that, and we got all, some great uh, feedback from that, and a lot of you participated in that. I assume it was you. I don't, it was an anonymous survey, and then when, a couple weeks ago, we shared the results of that, so if you missed that message, check that out in our podcast or online or at the CD <coughs> table, and I'm not going to revisit all those statistics, but we just kind of scratched the surface a couple weeks ago. So today... We're going back to the most famous prayer ever offered. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. And I challenged you a couple weeks ago to pray through the Lord's Prayer, to pray it in your own words. And throughout this series, we're going to be working through this very familiar prayer, and we're going to take it section by section. And some of you know this prayer really well. You could recite it. Some of you grew up hearing it, and you grew up reciting it. Some of you said it in school because you went, maybe you went to a parochial school, or there was a day that even if you attended public school, you recited the Lord's Prayer every day. How many of you attended a public school and, attend, and recited the Lord's Prayer in school? Let me see. My hand's up too. 
and I'm not even that old, but yes. And uh, how many of you think maybe we should bring those? No, don't answer that question because I want you to really, I would really challenge you to think about that before you say you think we should bring those days back. That's all I'm going to say because I would love to debate that with you over lunch today. Um, So I'll play devil's advocate and we'll go at it. That'd be awesome because I love discussing controversial, somewhat political things, especially when it involves religion. So um, that's not our purpose this morning and I'm not going to go there. A lot of us grew up with the Lord's Prayer, but... For some of you, it was a spiritual discipline. I mean, it was part of a connection with God. It carried a lot of meaning for you, the Lord's Prayer. It was much more than a meaningless tradition. But for some of you, it was punishment. Because if you grew up in a Catholic tradition, and you did something, and you were punished with 10 Our Fathers or whatever, depending on the gravity of your sin. So we have different relationships with the Lord's Prayer. And it might be deeply meaningful for you, or maybe you're just like, yeah, I know it's how Jesus taught us to pray, but I don't really get it. I don't, how do we really pray? I don't know how this is, is helpful to us. That's what I want to engage this morning. Uh, we have this idea of prayer that we talked about last time, that prayer is a button to be pushed. We just think of it as a button to be pushed. If you get something uh, to pray about, you just push the button. And if you push the button hard enough or often enough or well enough in the right way, if you get enough people to push the button, or if you can activate the prayer chain to push the button, or if you, and if you don't know what that is, that's perfectly fine. And if you get enough people who know how to push the button to push the button in, your, in prayer then, uh, and do it as often as possible, as possible, then God will do what we're asking him to do. And we lean into that, that thinking sometimes. The challenge of that, of course, is that that's a really shallow way of looking at prayer. And a lot of us have prayed and we just got frustrated with prayer because we've just been pushing the button and God doesn't seem to be paying attention. And maybe for some of you, that's why you quit praying at some point. For some of you, it explains why you don't pray. And the reason you don't pray is because maybe you have a fairly successful, wrinkle-free life. Life's pretty good. You've got some money in the bank. Your job is going good. Everybody's healthy. The marriage is good. And as a result... You don't think there's that much that you need, so if you don't have a need to push the button, then you're not going to be praying. You know that if somebody, someday that you have something you need, then you'll pray, because you see prayer as a button to be pushed, and that can explain why you pray a lot, and it can explain why you hardly pray at all. But if we can begin to understand prayer as God intended it to be, we'll come to realize that it's not a button to be pushed. In fact, it's a relationship to be pursued. In the same way that some of us are pursuing God, the big surprise in all this for some of us is that God is pursuing us. We thought we were pursuing God, you know, but Christianity is the only belief system in the world that says that God is pursuing us. And God knows you by name, and He cares about you, and He created you for a purpose, and He loves you, and He wants a relationship with you. So what I promised last time is that we were going to work through the Lord's Prayer little by little, line by line, and try to follow Jesus' example of how to pray. So the the question is, uh, how do you normally begin your prayers? How do you begin to pray? Like, like when you pray, how do you begin? Well, a lot of us pray this way. We're going to get into really some practical nitty-gritty here, so I, I hope this is helpful. A lot of us, when we begin to pray, we begin by addressing God. Because if you grew up in church, you heard enough people praying that you knew that you got to start off saying something nice about God. You know, you should say something nice to Him. And then, uh, and if you, if you had multiple uh, expressions for God, to use them all at once, is that some serious accomplished praying right there. So I should say something nice to God and say it in like five different ways in the first sentence. Then, get that out of the way and get into my list. Like, okay, God, uh, nice talking to you, but here's what I need in my life and here's what I need you to do, and here's what needs to change, and this is what needs to happen, and here's what needs to happen at work, and here's what needs to happen at school, and here's what needs to happen in my marriage, and here's what needs to happen in my family, and here's what needs to happen for me financially, and here's the way I see the world. God, so would you please make things work the way that I think that they should work out? That'd be great. Nice talking to you. Talk to you tomorrow over and out, you know? So we begin with a quick introduction in our prayers, and we jump into our list, our needs, the push button uh, mode. I mean, you, have, you might have a different formula, uh, but fortunately for us, uh, Jesus taught us how to pray. And in the Lord's Prayer, he actually shows us a very different way to approach our prayers. So we're going to go there. In Matthew chapter 6 is the passage we're going we're to use today. There are a couple of passages in the scripture that, where Jesus teaches the disciples the same prayer, but there are two different occasions. 
Uh, one is in Matthew 6 during the Sermon on the Mount, and one is in Luke 11 where Jesus and his disciples are having a conversation. So Matthew chapter 6 is what Jesus says. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when he's talking about the model for prayer that all of us should follow, he says, you should pray this way. And what he does, and we're going to dig down into this a lot more probably next time, but what, what he does is he introduces a battle. A battle that I think you probably experience, whether you're a Christian or not. It's a battle that almost every human being experiences. It's a battle that I go through, even as a leader in the church. It's a battle between two kingdoms. In fact, the central battle when it comes to prayer and life in general is simply this. The battle between my kingdom and God's kingdom. The battle between my kingdom and God's kingdom. And the battle that you'll have, the battle that you'll have in your prayer life, the battle that you'll have in praying is simply this. The battle between the way you see the world and the way God sees the world. And Jesus addresses this as he begins this prayer. And I know that some of us are so familiar with it. So you're so familiar with it, you gave up on it because it seems empty and rote and meaningless. And, it, and actually, it's kind of poetic. So it kind of has this little kind of a meter to it. And next thing you know, you just feel like you're reciting a nursery rhyme or something. But I'm going to tell you, there's a different way to pray. So I want to talk us and walk us through the Lord's Prayer. In fact, this not only works with the Lord's Prayer, it works with almost any passage of Scripture. I think one of the best ways to approach prayer, because we said a couple weeks ago that one of our problems when it comes to prayer is that we just don't know what to pray about. You know how you hear about, about you know, spiritual people and they pray for like a half hour at a time, and they don't hardly take a breath, you know? And, I, and you're like, well, I don't even, I don't know how they do that. My, my, my prayer is like done in like two minutes, and, and I, I, I don't have 30 minutes of material, so I really don't even know what to say. And I'm telling you, if you pray this way, you'll never run out of material. You'll never run out of things to say. And the longer I do life as a follower of Christ, the more I pray this way, because my prayers, they can tend to be shallow and selfish and self-absorbed or whatever. But when I take some time to read Scripture and to really dwell on it, and you might call it meditating, and as you're, you're looking at the text and you begin to pray through the Scripture that you're reading, your prayers come to life in that moment. And you can do this with the Lord's Prayer. And what I'm going to show you is something that you can use in all sorts of passages of Scripture, especially if you're, especially if you're reading in the Psalms. There's a lifetime of, of material there, but for something that seems as simple and concise and even repetitive as repeating the Lord's Prayer, uh, I, I, can, I hope we can bring a whole new layer of meaning to it this morning and a new freshness for something that may have become stale and predictable. So for example, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You could look at that and focus on heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You ever thought about that as often as you prayed this prayer or heard this prayer prayed? Or you're just like, well, I prayed that prayer, I prayed that line, now what's next? I can't remember, you know, pulling it up. But think about it. We actually have a Father who's in heaven. What's that mean, to be in heaven? I mean, why is, is that a good thing? Why is that a good thing? If he's in heaven and we're not, is that a good thing for us? Because we're clearly not in heaven, but God is. So I think we know that, that our, on earth, life isn't the way it's supposed to be. Life isn't the way God intended it to be. Uh, it, it, that might even, be, uh, might even be the reason some of you are here right now. Maybe it's the reason that you're here for the first time today is because your life isn't going the way you hoped it would be going by now. And you're frustrated and you're disappointed and maybe you're even angry at God. Or, or I don't know, maybe things are going great, and there's, but there's still an emptiness. There's an emptiness to your success. There's an emptiness that you can't really solve. And every time you get a raise and every time you close a deal and every time you get a promotion and every time you take a vacation and every time you make a big purchase, whatever the thing is, you settle back into your routine and the emptiness is still there. What is that? C.S. Lewis calls that a longing for heaven. That disconnect that you feel is a longing for something beyond this world. So what's the significance that we have a Father in heaven? And can we actually talk to the God who is in heaven? Can we actually, as the song says, touch the sky? Can we really make that connection? And where this starts to go, if you start to focus on different words and put them under the spotlight, is it'll take your prayer life to another level 
because there's enough material here for a day's worth of thought and study, and you can go as deep as you want with it. But when you pray through Scripture, you'll never run out of things to say. You'll never run out of things to communicate with God about or questions to ask or things to give thanks for. And it's just one way to look at it. What if we come back another day and we focus on another word, and what if we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father. Because Jesus does something really radical here. He addresses God in a personal way, in a relational way, and that was groundbreaking in his day. In in the religious climate that he was introduced to, uh, that he was living in a couple thousand years ago, people didn't talk to God that way. They had all kinds of names for God, but to think of God as a father, uh, that had never occurred to them. And sometimes he would use a word, not in this case, but sometimes he would use a word for God that was almost embarrassing, it was almost scandalous, and it was the same term that little children would use, little toddlers would use to address their father. And he used the Aramaic word Abba, which is the, close, the closest English equivalent is Daddy. He'd be praying and he would address God as Daddy. And the religious churchy people freaked out. And they're like, whoa, what? Daddy? You can't call God Daddy. Because they got to the point, and this is a, there's a healthy balance in here somewhere, but they got to the point where they wouldn't even pronounce the name for God. They wouldn't say it out loud because God to them had become nothing more than at best an impersonal being and he was so holy and so big and so abstract and almost more of a concept than anything else to them. And then Jesus comes along and he's like, Dad, I mean, what's it mean to have a relationship with the God who created you? What does that mean? What difference does it make? Father in heaven. And I know, I know that some of you, that your relationship with your father isn't something that you celebrate. It isn't something that brings up warm fuzzies for you. It was bad. And the last thing you want to call God is father because you've had a horrible relationship there in that part of your life and you don't want to go back there. But it's the only context you know for relating to God and father, so it's really confusing and it's actually maybe held you back in your ability to experience intimacy with your heavenly Father. I get that, and I acknowledge that. I think what we all long for is that healthy relationship with Father God. And then as a father myself, I realize how imperfect I am and how often I've fallen short. And one of the things I've desired the most in raising my kids, who somehow are now adults, has been to direct my children toward their heavenly Father. And I don't always get it right. But I always want to present, here's your heavenly father as he is, who is perfect, who created you for a purpose. And you can know him and you can call him dad. You can approach him that way. So what does it mean for me that he's in heaven? What's it mean for me that I can call him father? I guess it means that he wants a relationship with me. Maybe even that he pursues me and he loves me and he forgives me. Or you can go back another time and pray and look at it this way. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our father. So it's like, wait, wait, wait. Wait a minute, we're, we're, we're living in a very individualistic uh, Western modern culture. It's about me, so it should be my father, my father, my, my, me, 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 me. Uh, we call this the Lord's Prayer, but this isn't his prayer. His prayer is in John 17, where he prays for us. Here he's teaching his disciples and he's teaching all of us how to pray. So he's giving us an example, pray this way. Our Father. So all of a sudden, the idea of prayer is a little bit bigger than me and my deal and my wish list and all the things that I need to push the button for and me, 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 my, my, my. My wants, my wish list, you know, my deal. We're part of a community. We're in this together. Our Father in heaven. That's an assault on my selfishness. That's an assault on the concept that the whole universe revolves around me. Our Father. And Jesus ushers us into this battle. And it's a difference between our kingdom and God's kingdom, my kingdom and God's kingdom. And it's just the first line. It's just, it's just the first line of the prayer. And, but we'll keep, uh, we'll keep going next week, but I've got time to fill, so I'm just going to keep talking. Uh, verse, uh, n- verse 9 says, hallowed be your name. What's hallowed? Hallowed, what's that mean? It's not a word that we use every day. Hallowed. There are only a couple times where we use this word in our culture. One of the places where we use the word hallowed is around cemeteries. In fact, next Monday on Memorial Day, uh, in those observances, you'll probably hear the word used. If you've ever visited Arlington National Cemetery, you've seen these signs that say, please remember, these are hallowed grounds. Hallowed means holy. The idea that God's name 
is holy. It is above every other name. Think about that. What does it mean that I'm going to declare and acknowledge that God's name is holy, that his name is above all other names, including mine? Of course, he's above your names, but to acknowledge that his name is above all names, including my own. What's that look like in my life? To exalt God above my own name in my life. So we can look at it that way. Hallowed be your name. Or you can look at it, hallowed be your name. You, you kind of get the idea, right? Because you're like, is he going to do the whole prayer this way? No, I'm not. Because the battle in my life is with me. So I'm going to lift up your name. Oh, when you really start to read the Bible, and I would encourage you to do that, by the way. Just take some time, read your Bible. And by the time you get to the New Testament... You've encountered many, many different names of God. He's known as God the Most High, God the Defender, God the Protector, God the Provider, all kinds of names for God that were very descriptive. And we sing the song saying a couple weeks ago, God with us, Emmanuel, another name for God. It means God with us. And the idea that God isn't just transcendent, He doesn't just live above us, He came to us in Jesus, and He lived as a human, and He died and He rose again. There's something powerful in the name of Jesus. It's the name by which we're saved. It's the name by which we enter into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And you can start to focus on all the different names of God that reveal different aspects of the character of God. And you can start right here in Matthew 6. Hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. See where our prayer lives could go if we approached it this way? That, and this is just the first couple lines of this prayer. This is why we're taking it bit by bit. So the next verse, verse 10, says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we get into the battle, the battle between two kingdoms. And the challenge you're going to face, Jesus says, you need to declare God's kingdom first, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's, I tell you what, there's something, I'm okay with our Father, that's cool. In heaven, I'm okay, that's a cool concept too. Your name is holy, I get that. But your kingdom, I, I really wanted to talk with you about my kingdom. I got a list of things. So I fight this. There are different versions of the Bible, as you probably discovered and may have found that confusing at times. Today I'm using the NIV, the New International Version. In fact, there are a couple of versions of the New International Version, which is also confusing. But it was first released in 1978, and then it was updated in 1984, and then again in 2011. So sometimes, even though we might both be using the NIV, we might be using different editions of the NIV, but, and the differences aren't that great, but sometimes the words in your NIV might not match up perfectly with the words on the screen because that's the 2011 NIV. And then just to keep you on your toes, I sometimes like to use the New Living Translation, the NLT. And some of you are like, I'm just trying to get my head around the Bible, dude. You know, it's a place in my life, so why are there so many different translations? This is so confusing. And I get that, but here's why. Because when the Bible was written, I mean, parts of it thousands of years ago, other parts a couple thousand years ago. So the newest parts of the Bible are a couple thousand years old. It was written in Hebrew, in Greek, and some of it in Aramaic. And of course, a couple, I think only a couple of us in this room are fluent in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, <laughs> right? So we have to translate it into English. The most famous English translation was the King James Version over 400 years ago. And some of us use different translations today because it's not the 1600s, and language changes. The NIV is a very good translation of the Bible. I grew up with the King James Version, but I've been using the NIV much longer now since I started in youth ministry nearly 27 years ago. And I really like the NIV, and I think it's because, maybe it's because it was written in the 70s and 80s, which is when I grew up, and maybe that's why it resonates with me. Um, the New Living Translation uh, was completed in, in the 90s, and I, I love the way it phrases certain things. I'm curious how many of you still use the King James primarily. I'm curious. Anybody use that primarily as your Bible? A few, a handful of people. Uh, and it's interesting because we, uh, how many of you use the NIV primarily? New Living? Okay. Um, those are the three that we use here most often. And, and it's interesting because I think we can get all sidetracked by arguing about which translations are the best. And I've decided once and for all, so you can just write this down, the best translation. Okay, here it comes. You ready? The best translation of the Bible is the one that you actually read. Okay? I've found that most people who spend their time arguing about the translations of the Bible are spending more time arguing than they are actually reading the Bible. So let's just read the Bible. Okay? So Anyway, sometimes it's interesting to compare the different translations. And I, I love doing this. And most of these translations, this is interesting to me, interpret this part of the prayer the same way. But when we get our hands on it, 
being literary scholars that we are, we add our twist and we add our commentary. And instead of praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we tend to pray my kingdom come and my will be done. Oh, here's what it is. Here's what my kingdom looks like, God. Oh, here's my will for this situation. Uh, and that's the Todd Crossweight version. And I never claimed to be a scholar of ancient languages. So, okay. But that's just what I naturally pray. I just pray my kingdom come. My will be done. And if, we're, if, if you were to honestly audit your prayer life, that's probably what you pray a lot of the time too. Maybe not in those words. Bless you. God, I just want what I want. I want what I think is best because if I was running the world, I would do a lot better job than you're doing right now, God, because I don't know what you're thinking about this situation here and that deal there and this thing in my life and that thing over there. i got all kinds of great ideas that you apparently haven't thought of, God. I mean, in my life and in my family, when I look at what's happening at work and I look at what's happening in my health and in my finances, and I, I just want to tell you I would be doing it completely differently from you because I want my kingdom and I want my will to be done. So Jesus starts by introducing us to this fundamental battle of our lives. And he's like, where you begin in your praying matters because you are going to pray about your kingdom. But he would say, I'm proposing, why don't you start your prayers with God's kingdom instead? Why don't we start with, I know my life can't be just about me all the time, God. I know because that's where I default to. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I default to my kingdoms, to what I think, to what I need, my, 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 me, me, me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here it is. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why is this so important? And I think it's important. Regardless of where you are in the spiritual spectrum, if you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, if you're enjoying a growing relationship with Jesus, if you're just getting started, if you haven't quite crossed the line of faith, if you're kind of on the outside looking in, you've got lots of questions you want answered first, if you don't even know why you're here, you think you're here for barbecue today, wherever you are, it's important because when your kingdom wins, listen, when your kingdom wins, you lose. If your kingdom wins, you lose. And as much as you pray about your kingdom, you know, come on, God, come on, get with the program. Let's go, God. Chop, chop. Come on. What are you waiting for? When your kingdom wins, you lose. And you know this. Because the person who's praying about themselves or the person who's always asking for prayer about themselves and the person whose prayer requests are always about themselves God, if you just do this thing for me, it'd be so amazing. I'd give you all the glory if you just do this thing for me. In the end, the person who prays that selfishly loses. Before we get too judgmental, I instinctively pray that selfishly. Perhaps there's chance you're more sensitive to the needs of people around you than I am. I can't imagine. I don't know. It's quite possible. But if my kingdom wins, I lose. If your kingdom wins, you lose. It's not just Christians who know this. I think because God designed life and he designed things to work in a certain way, the Bible makes more sense than you might think. And the Bible talks about dying to yourself and living for Christ. And if you think about it, that value naturally resonates with you. You naturally admire people when you see it in someone else. But most of us don't like selfish people, do we? I mean, when you, you think about someone you know who you see as selfish, do you ever wonder, what do I have to do to get on that person's agenda so I can spend some time with them because they're just, just to hang out because they're just so pleasant to be around with all their selfishness and all that. It's so great. I'd like a little of that to rub off on me. I wish I could spend some... You don't think that about people that, that you see as selfish. About uh, 15 years ago, Jim Collins uh, wrote a book called Good to Great. I don't know if you've read it or not. It's one of the best business books of all time. makes a lot of top 10 lists uh, on all kinds of lists. And it's just, if you haven't read it and you're interested in personal development, you should read it. It's phenomenal. I've had the privilege to hear Jim Collins speak two or three times, and his insight's just amazing. But in his research, uh, he went out to discover what the difference was between companies that were great and companies that were merely good. And he didn't come from a Christian perspective. It was merely... Uh, it, was a, it was a research perspective. He compiled and analyzed a lot of data. 
and he was trying to figure out what separates the super overachievers, the companies that outperform the stock market, that outperform the economy, and outperform expectations over a period of 40 years. A huge project. Tons of data. So he identified the top performers over a 40-year window, and then he asked, what makes these companies different? What are their distinctive qualities? And he found a few identifying principles that were common to all the companies on the list. But it came to the one last criteria. His team of researchers were shocked. He kept looking for a way to discount this one piece of criteria, this one indicator that they found in their research, and it had to do with the attitude or the approach of the senior leader of the company. Because when we think of a company that is uber successful, you know, like not just good, but a great company, we tend to think of a leader who must be very strong. And the research showed that for sure, he had to be that person, he or she had to be a strong leader to lead a level five company. But they also found that the only meaningful difference between the leaders of a good company and the leaders of a great company as they define great for the purpose of their research was the humility of the CEO. Collins said that some of these leaders had such a consistent and persistent humility coupled with a strong drive to win. And somewhere along the line, they'd park their ego. They decided this isn't going to be about me and about my agenda and my kingdom. This is going to be about something bigger than me, maybe something greater than me. And Jim Collins wasn't researching what happens in the kingdom of God. He was just talking about the marketplace and finances and corporate America. But he said that the thing that united them all was leaders who were humble. I think Jesus is saying to us through these words in the Lord's Prayer that that is going to be the fundamental battle in your life. Your struggle with humility and self-centeredness and where to park your ego, your kingdom or God's kingdom. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, that was pretty cool. I get that. If my kingdom wins, I lose. But one of the reasons I pray is because I have problems. So what about my problems? That's what I really want to know. What about my problems? I know I should pray about my problems. People say they'll pray for my problems. I pray for other people's problems. What about my problems? If I'm just praying our Father in heaven, uh, you know, you're holy and it's just amazing I get to call you Father because your name's so holy and your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What about my problems? Where does that come into play? I want to introduce you to a thought that I hope bothers you because it bothered me. I kind of hope your gut reaction is that can't be true, but I think it is. And this is what Jesus is introducing us to in the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer. When he says, our Father in heaven, your name is so holy. I think what he's introducing to us is that the bigger your God, the smaller your problems. That's why we need to start our time in prayer, looking at God, not looking at ourselves. Because our problems often sound like, oh God, I got this and I got that and I got this health thing and money's really tight and this relationship has fallen apart and I don't know what to do about my job and I could really use a new car, God. It's been two and a half years and I got all kinds of problems. And sometimes we let our whole lives be defined by our problems. And the issue isn't that you don't have big problems. The issue is that your God isn't big enough. We all need a God who's bigger than our problems. Here's the good news. You have a God who is bigger than your problems. And Jesus is saying to us, if you can just keep this in perspective in your prayers... We have a great big God you can trust no matter what, but we forget that. But if your God is big enough, and I believe that the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, almighty creator God, is big enough to handle whatever. And when we keep that in perspective, then our problems seem smaller. And in this battle of kingdoms, this is what we're praying. Okay, I need a big God. I need a bigger God. I need a big God here. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, God. There's a kingdom other than my kingdom. There's an agenda other than my agenda. There's a kingdom that's bigger than mine, that's better than mine, that will outlast mine. So, Father, your kingdom come. Oh, and as you keep praying through this and you keep kind of focusing on different words, I think the idea of your kingdom come, this isn't something we have to wait for. 
the kingdom of God is actually here and not here yet. And I love that about the kingdom of God. And when you submit and surrender your life to Christ, when the church is functioning the way the church is, is called to function, when Christians are being the church instead of just going to church, when we are being who God has called us to be, when we, when we, are, 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 when we relinquish control of our kingdoms, when we give him control, God's kingdom becomes in part now. And it'll come more fully, but it comes in part now. More is possible in this world and in our lifetimes and in our, in our, our sphere of influence than we realize. More is possible in the church than we realize. More is possible in your life than you realize. So you can pray, your kingdom come in the here and now, and your will be done in my life. So Jesus begins with God. He begins with God because he knows that the bigger your God, the smaller your problems. And some of you, because I don't want to make light, some of you came in way down with big problems, and I get that. I'm not minimizing your problems, so don't, don't misunderstand that. I would just propose that you need a bigger God. Your view of God needs to expand. And if you actually begin to look at God as he really is, you'll realize that the more that you focus on his goodness and his love for you, and his grace, and his forgiveness, and his provision, the smaller your problems appear. We could be done there, but I feel like I want to go one more place here for a few minutes. Because you might be thinking, okay, that's so far, I don't know how practical any of that is. Uh, it's not as practical as you thought it was going to be, Todd, so what do you got for me? Well, I want to, I want to look at one of the Psalms. It's a psalm of David, and if your Bible has those headings above some of the psalms, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes there's a description about what's going on in this psalm. This one reads, a psalm of David where he fled from Saul and hid in a cave. That's the heading, okay? This is Psalm 57. A psalm of David when he fled from Saul and hid in a cave. I love that. I know some of you have big problems, but just to offer some perspective, I don't think any of you woke up this morning wondering what cave you're going to hide in today because someone, some lunatic, some madman is trying to kill you, right? <clears throat> David's problems were big enough that he was hiding in caves because he was afraid for his life. So David wrote most of the book of Psalms, which is really the Jewish songbook. And a lot of the songs that we sing here are lifted right out of the Psalms. And incidentally, the book of Psalms is called the book of Psalms with an S on the end. Each individual chapter is a psalm, and it bugs me when I put verses up on the screen and the, the reference at the bottom says, it's going to say it here in a second, it's going to say Psalms 57. I didn't type that. It's in our database, and it just pulls up that way, and it really aggravates me. So you never noticed it before, and now you're all aggravated, and now look what I've done. But this is from the, it's Psalm 57 from the book of Psalms. That has nothing to do with anything. It was just me getting that burr out from under my saddle, I guess. This book was written nearly 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus walked this earth and before he ever taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. David's in trouble. Here's what's going on. When he was a young teenager, he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. He wasn't a part of the royal family. He wasn't expected at all. Uh, but God, through his prophet Samuel, had chosen David to be the next king, and even when the current, or, you know, when the current king, the King Saul, died. That was kind of a problem, because there was already a reigning king, and basically uh, David had to wait a long time to become king. But he became friends with King Saul initially. And basically he became friends with King Saul until Saul turned on him, because Saul was threatened by David's success as a warrior and by his popularity with the people. And Saul turned his heart against God, and he commands his army of 3,000 soldiers to hunt down David and to kill him, the man who God has anointed as the next king. David has about 600 guys around him. Apparently, they I don't understand because they were not soldiers. They were just hanging out with David. I guess they were unemployed and had no life, and I guess their parents finally kicked them out of their basements or something. But they just decided to join David's entourage and uh, so he's got this ragtag band of soldiers, if you want to call them that, and they're up against 3,000 well-trained, well-fed, well-equipped soldiers of the region's superpower. How is this going to play out? And David realizes the odds, and he's kind of scared, uh, to say the least. And he says to God, okay, you anointed me king. I was there, I remember. You anointed me king. I didn't ask to be king. I was fine with being a shepherd in the family business. Now this lunatic wants to kill me. I have problems, God. Fortunately for us, David writes about them. 
So if you're like, okay, for real, how does this play out for me? How does this really have any practical application for me? I struggle with this prayer thing. I'm not sure this has been helpful so far. Well, first of all, if your problems are so big that you're hiding in caves for your own safety, if we haven't seen you here in a while because you've been busy sneaking from cave to cave because someone's trying to kill you with his army, good news is now you have a role model. So here, for most of us, our problems aren't that big, are they? But if they get that big, and the problems, oh, our problems seem that big, we know what to do in Psalm 57. Here's what he says. He says, for, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. It's like, hello, God, I could use some help here. I got some big problems. I really need something here. But I'm going to focus on you because it's in you I take refuge. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Again, I'm going to focus on God because he's bigger than my problems. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. <laughs> it's like, so I've got this problem, you know, and I'm in a cave and I could die, but the bigger my God, the smaller my problem, so I'm going to focus on God. Verse 3, he sends from heaven and saves me. Rebuking those who hotly pursue me, God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. It's like, I may not be feeling it right now, but I know that that's what he does, that he sends his love and his faithfulness. I know that about him, so I'm going to focus on that. Verse 4, I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. This is his reality. And I'm not suggesting to you that you ignore your reality. I'm not suggesting that you can't bring your reality to God. I'm not saying your reality is no big deal. David focused on God, and then he shared a little bit about his current reality. But then, verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David knew he had a God who was bigger than his problems. And we know, because we know the rest of the story, we know that David would eventually become king. And God used him, and the nation prospered under his leadership. And he was, for the most part, a great king. He had some personal character issues, to say the least, but he was a great king. And the scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart. He pursued God's heart. And in this moment in his life, hiding in a cave, holding his breath as Saul's men were hunting him down, even then in his prayers, in his conversations with God, his focus wasn't entirely on his problems. His focus was on God. Verse 6, they spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they've fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing in this cave and make music in this cave. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. See what happens here? In those 11 verses, his problems find their proper place in the face of the greatness of God. Well, by the way, there's some incredible practical effect when we see God as he is, when we acknowledge him for who he is, when we pray to a God who's bigger than our problems. Oh, you remember the story about Saul? While he and his men were out hunting David. (laughs) Remember the story about Saul going into the cave? Do you remember that? To go to the bathroom? Remember that? You're like, you're making that up. No, it's in the Bible. I'm telling you, you should read the Bible. It's pretty interesting. He's going in there to go to the bathroom. It was apparently a, a known rest area on, <laughs> through this path in the woods somewhere. And David is hiding in the very same cave at the very same time. I don't know if it's this particular cave. But I can just imagine he's in the back. because uh, he's, he's doing his own theme oh, music. Okay. That's how I've always pictured David in the back of this cave, okay? Because it's awkward right now, okay? He, not only does he not want to get killed, but he doesn't... The king is in there going to the bathroom. He doesn't want the king to know he's there. I, so that's how I always kind of pictured it. But remember what he does? Thank you. He sneaks up on Saul. I'm not making this up. The stuff's in the Bible. David's guys are like, David, this is it. He could not be more vulnerable. Let's take him out right now. And I think David thinks about it. But he comes to the conclusion that he can't. He says, I can't raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
So instead of killing Saul right then and there, he sneaks up on him and he cuts off a little piece of his robe. Then he retreats into the darkness. And Saul leaves the cave, and as they're getting ready to leave the area move on, David comes out to the mouth of the cave. Can you picture this? Oh, hey, Saul! And they're like, what? Could have killed you in there. But I didn't. Here's the hem of your garment. And then God was like, whoa, I thought I had something special in this guy, but wow, I can use a guy like that. Because he died to his kingdom. He could have killed Saul in that moment, right then and there, and the kingdom of Israel would have been his. But he died to his kingdom. He put his kingdom aside for the sake of God's kingdom, for the sake of what God was already doing. And he wasn't about to manipulate any of that. And Saul, who was all about my kingdom, my kingdom, me, 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 was soon no longer king. He took his own life after he was wounded on the battlefield. See, the bigger your God, the smaller your problems, even if you've got big problems. So this week when you pray, and I hope you will pray, I hope you'll create some time in your schedule, some margin in your life where you can pray. And I hope that even in these first two lines of the Lord's Prayer that you'll find a lot of content and a lot to guide you as you pray and put your problems into perspective by focusing on a bigger God. I don't know what your problems are, but God does. Oh, and your problems? We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks' time as we work our way through the Lord's Prayer. But for now, just remember this. Start with God. Just start with God. Start with God as He really is. Because the bigger your God, the smaller your problems, no matter how big your problems are. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, there's a lot to think about here. There's a lot to process, and we don't want to just kind of fly through it because it's so familiar. I thank you for teaching us how to pray. Thank you for putting so much into those first couple lines, enough to last us a lifetime. And I pray for everybody who came into this place today with big problems. Maybe some people here feel like they're hiding from cave to cave. I thank you for stories like David, a man on the run, hiding, scared, confused. And you were with him, and he focused on you, and it put his problems in perspective. God, we acknowledge you're the God who created the universe, and we don't always understand why you do the things you do, why you allow the things you do, why things go the way they do. But for now, we just want to trust you. We want to focus on you. We want to focus on a God who's bigger than our problems, who's bigger than maybe we even understand him to be. So this morning, as much as we know how, we trust you. We surrender our wills to your will. Father, our prayer is your kingdom come. Listen to this.